Welcome to the Don't Die Podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. There you go. Chuck is here. Wow, there it is. You know, it's been a long time, Chuckster. I know. It feels like it's been, what, how long has it been, really? Two weeks. It's only <laughs> long. Two, two weeks, weeks in the recovery racket. A lot of people can die. Well, we've saved a lot of lives and buried quite a few. Three of three people I know died in eight days. That's nuts. So Dr. Drew and I did a podcast yesterday, and he was explaining to the audience that he, if in a nutshell, to understand he and I is the yin and yang of he and I is that he's an optimist and I'm a pessimist, right? Oh, and really? I, and well, he's known me for you know thirty five years, and I just I always point out things that I'm disgruntled about and I forget because I live in gratitude and love and goodness I really do but I forget to point out whenever I have a platform to talk that people constantly send me I have 32 years I just got a message I am message today a guy has 32 years right Mm -hmm. and people a girl I know that I've been trying to help for 10 years has her first year coming up in like this weekend that's so, and so, that's cool. so there's yeah. that. I just don't talk about it all that much. I don't. I don't know why. Because I'm a negative pessimist. <laughs> right? You know, it's not as much fun to go. Well, you know, things are going okay. Yeah, but <laughs> people are getting sober and people are dying. That that's a fact. And when you're when you have a loved one that you care about, you know it's that black and white. They're either going to turn it around or they're going to die. And your fear that that spot that you're in as the uh, loving an addict or loving uh, 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 alcoholic, you, you can see very clearly that they're either going to turn it around or die. The addict themselves is not too aware of these challenges. Oh, no, it's nowhere (laughs) near that black and white for them. They live in shades of gray all day. And navigation of, of, of the edges, right? Mm -hmm. So, They'll constantly say to me, well, Bob, you know, there's no guarantee if I go to sober living that I'm going to stay sober. <laughs> and I said, no, there isn't. But there is a guarantee arguing with the guy who's trying to help you that you don't want to go to sober living. That's not a good sign, though. I'll admit and most counselors won't admit. I'll admit people have told me to fuck off and didn't go to sober living and stayed sober. But you've got to understand lots of people. Have to, those people are few. Lots of people told me to fuck off and I'm not going to sober living and died, and those people are many. Those are just the facts. Right. Well, at least my personal experience or your personal experience. I mean, from watching, 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 and you know, that's what I tell a lot of the new guys. Sit and watch. Yes, you see these things, but sit and watch, hang out and watch. You can learn a lot by what other people do. And that's really the difference between me and someone with 10 days in my 20 years is that I've seen a lot of people come and go and a lot of people come and stay. A lot of people come get it and walk and go do other things. Uh, Watched it every which way. You know, it's funny because I was showing Bob and the monster to a a group the other day. And and you said, you said something in that film that was so good. And it was along the lines of, you know, you're, you're miserable, you're beat down, you're, you know, everybody hates you. Everybody hates you. You you don't really, you don't want to kill yourself. They can't but, stand the sight of you. But and you're arguing to maintain that lifestyle. That's it. Just it. makes no sense. I did it for years, and and I wasn't really. I was kind of talking about Stephen Adler in that moment because he was the subject that we were talking about. But but I was talking about myself also. 
there came a point in Silver Lake where I would see friends of mine, like, down the street, you know, and I would go to say hello to them, and they would disappear. <laughs> and it wasn't by accident that yep. they disappeared. Right. Because they didn't want to, and later on I confronted some of them that they were mean to me or whatever it is that you perceive as an addict. And they were more than blunt about seeing you as a drag. Every time you fucking came around, you complaining, this person did you wrong and this and that and fucking you won't believe what fucking happened. And it just gets boring, Bob. And so I try to convey that to, to the addicts I work with. Like, you're just boring. It's yeah. just fucking boring. You know, it's not, they think it's exciting because they've always got a story to tell, but it's always predictable. It's always bad, it's always bad stuff happening. They're always losing wallets, losing phones. Somebody losing, did something somebody or somebody stole fucked from them, them or, under. Yeah, and or they're just, getting threatened. Their lives are being threatened. It's always the same thing. It doesn't matter if it's my kids or someone's kids I've never met. It's always the same story. I mean, I get fucked under, but I don't go running around telling everybody anymore. You just kind of learn to live with, that's the way life rolls. Sometimes yeah. you get fucked under, sometimes you fuck people under, sometimes it's neutral, sometimes good things happen for no reason, sometimes bad things happen for good reason. That's life. I think that Americans in general and addicts in particular are just incapable of rolling with how life works. You know yeah. what I mean? No, no. We've been, uh, an old timer in one of my groups passed this last week. So on Sunday, it was a kind of a, it was kind of sad, but it wasn't because it was a celebration. You could hear his words and almost everybody that shared, you know, because he was the, one of those guys that had an impact, you know. In Huntington? Yeah, in, in Sunset Beach. And, and he was just such a, such a great guy. And I've admired him since I started going to that meeting, you know, not, not so much a hero, but just admired him and like what he had to say. And you could hear Steve and all the shares that day. But, you know, it's one of those things where it rains on the just and unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. You know, the sun even shines on the dog's asshole. You know, it doesn't matter. Our life, life comes and goes. Good and bad things happen. Exactly what you said. And people expect everything to go smoothly. And it's not an excuse to get loaded. Well, I think, you know, I got to admit that, you know, I'm, I'll be as honest as I can about the 12-step world. A lot of times the 12-step world is n naively peddles the idea that you will walk through the raindrops if you stay sober and work the steps and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. And it's I understand because I've confronted friends of mine that do that constantly. And, and the idea is to try and encourage the newcomer. We're, we encourage the newcomer by, by wearing our sobriety like a loose, comfortable garment. That's what the big book says. So lying or misrepresenting is not the way you encourage newcomers. You encourage newcomers by your life. You're free. Right. You're free. You can play music. You, you're not in servitude to methadone. You're, you laugh. You cry. You're honest. That thing got replaced in, in portions of the 12-step community in Southern California by we're going we're gonna to narrate for the newcomer to become encouraged. And I, I just, I'm not interested in that. Newcomers know what's up. I tell them, you're signing up for fucking misery, but it's going to get better. <laughs> well, yeah, I, that's, that, that's so true. Where It's not about what, it's not even so much about what I get to do, because I did a lot of things when I was drinking and using. It's what I don't have to do today that's the big deal. No, but being in sober living is miserable. Oh, People farting and you can't sleep and it's a, it's a fucking miserable experience. It's a but short it, stop it, on the it, way you're up. You're there for like two or three months and then you yeah. move on, get your own apartment, depending on how motivated you are. 
right? Some people, I never stayed more than right. The three farts months. are motivation. The, the the smelly roommates are motivation to get moving onto that next. Well, level. I was motivated from the very first time I went to sober living. The, you know, because I always say I went to Hazelden. They're the best. They're the Harvard of rehab, and they set it up. They you can't leave there without somebody picking you up at the airport. A whole game plan of what you're going to do the first 24 hours. You've talked to the sober living two times with your counselor. It's a it's it's fucking Harvard, Hazelden, Minnesota, right? I'd Not like the go, offshoots. I'd like to go see it just to see how it works. I'd it's like amazing. To go visit it. It's amazing. But they got all these offshoots, and now they're part of Betty Ford. No, fuck all that. But but uh, but so so I was scheduled. I you know I got to, I tricked the system for two hours. To get my girlfriend to pick me up and take me to, we went to, we went to Hollywood Park to have lunch and gamble, and then she brought me to home so I could get my stuff and then go to the sober living right, <laughs> and so so I went to the sober living out in North Hollywood and it was this old grumpy forty year sober guy and he goes this is your bunk and I was like okay and and there was one guy in the living room there's always that one guy in the living room with a Del Taco cup. Right, nowhere to go. <laughs> nowhere Nothing to go. To go. Nowhere Watching to call. TV. Derp. Right, yep. and he's he wants you to spot him five bucks. Or <laughs> so it's always that smoke. guy. There's always yep. that guy. And so, so then the old dude leaves. He goes, I gotta go. You know. And so there was, you know, this is in the old days when you didn't have 24 hour surveillance and so we're living. So the old guy was the house manager. He lived in a little single. Uh, converted garage behind the sober living building <laughs> right but he was leaving so i'd been there like seven minutes he showed me my bed he showed me where the bathroom was that's pretty self-explanatory he handed me the rules and you know the curfew he said i'm real strict on curfew because and he had some aa saying as if you're out late at night nothing good happens after 11 o'clock at night or something like that <laughs> i think and i then, tell my kids it's like eight o'clock or something yeah so <laughs> so eight. so so then he just leaves and it's me and the Del Taco Cup guy, right? And the Del Taco Cup guy literally hits me up for five bucks. And I'm like, and then I give it to him and then he stands up to get it and I smell alcohol on his breath. Nice. And he's got like Bacardi and Coke in the Del Taco Cup, obviously, or some some beverage was in the Del Taco Cup. And and <laughs> and then he leaves. So I'm in the sofa living by myself. For, within 17 minutes I'm just in there by myself and so I walked through all the rooms right and you got to understand the old days sober livings the, the master bedroom had five single beds in it like three Jeez. feet apart right and then there was little tiny single rooms that had two beds in it where you could you're basically you're two feet away from some person you don't even know right, no. right? so but I had promised that I would do it both mostly to my peers in the rehab because they really wanted, they thought if I come back to LA, I'm going to use in an hour. Right. And I love those guys. I always talk about it. So I said, I would stay for a month. Then I was <laughs> there and I was in outpatient right during the day. And then they started saying, Oh, you should stay another month. And I was like, I can, Oh my God, I signed up for 30 days of this. Wait, then they, what was outpatient like? What did that consist of? What did that look like back you then? You got there at nine in the morning. You had nine, nine o'clock, 12 step group, 10 15 process group. And then you had lunch. And then you had a one o'clock recovery education. Then you were done. Okay, right. So and it was in a hospital. It was in a hospital. It was in a hospital. No, the recovery education, the one o'clock thing was run by counselors too. I can tell you the counselors there. I mean, I don't know if I should, but 
Um, no, I don't, not if they're... Well, they're dead. Some of them are dead. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Bob. Buddy, buddy. I guess it would be okay to talk about them then. <laughs> wow. I don't know well, if I want to be one of your friends. Well, Glory, Gloria Scott was the, one of the counselors. This uh, Buddy Arnold was the head of marketing of it. Oh, um, yeah. This guy um, who later became my sponsor decades later, um, a songwriter who will remain nameless, who might have written, written one of my favorite songs called Rainy Days and Mondays, was a counselor there, right? And so I liked it there. I liked the people. So, so they said, stay another month in sober living. So I stayed another month, right? And, okay. and that, but that, that sober living was so miserable. I got up at <laughs> like six before all the rest of them got up so that I could have some coffee, have, you know, get out of there. I didn't smoke at the time. I had some coffee. I do make my bed, you know, do my 24 hour a day thing. And then I would head out of there. I had, a, I had a car, which a lot of sober living people don't. But I would go out of there, and then I would go to some Valley Denny's on Lancashire and Burbank Boulevard, and that's where I would poop because there was only two <laughs> bathrooms. But if you got yeah. to Denny's, like at 7 in the morning, it was, I don't know, I have to have privacy when I do that. And when you're pooping in sober <laughs> living with 13 guys living with two bathrooms... Somebody's always knocking on the door. So I found a system where I got up early, had coffee, did my morning meditation, then headed to Denny's, then ordered, then went to the bathroom, then headed over the hill to go to outpatient, right? Yeah. And, and I can tell you, it was miserable, but it was, it was doable, right? It was doable. Right. Sure. You used to do that at Tiny Nailers. <laughs> right down the street. <laughs> that was back in my constipated days when I was on heroin. I wish they had that drug now they have when you're an opiate oh, addict no. and you can poop. <laughs> yeah. Mike, don't you wish you had that? Mike would go month a month without pooping. That's really? fantastic. <laughs> How do you remember because, that? <laughs> because we had conversations. He would see. It would be like I heard the literally yep. <laughs> he wouldn't. You, he, Mike Mart was not <laughs> human. Mark. He was not human. He never slept. He always kind of looked cool. And he never went to the bathroom nor showered, <laughs> but he didn't smell. Yeah, that's that's weird. I know. Think about it. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. How do you not shower, be that full of poop, and not smell? I, it was a Mike Martin. You just it. don't generate anything. You don't like. You don't eat. It's all dope. It's all dope, and maybe some coke. You know, some uh, ginger ale and, and Jack Daniels. <laughs> but he was something to behold. <laughs> And then, and so, so I was always very conscious of sobriety and, and having some privacy. And so I understand when people don't want to go to sober living. There's a bunch of people there, and they use there. So what did I just describe, Chuck? The first sober living I went to in 1988, when I, the only client that was there was drinking alcohol. Yeah. Nothing has changed in 30 years. No, it hasn't really gotten, I don't think it's gotten any worse. It's, it's, some things have gotten better. Some things have gone downhill. Some things have, have changed. You know, I watched uh, the 60 Minutes last night and they did a, a, a follow-up report on that. They were talking about heroin in, in Ohio and how two years ago they were there and how much worse it's gotten. You know, at the end, there doesn't seem to be any, any, no end, to any end to it at all. And the biggest problem is that 
the stigma that was attached to heroin is gone is absolutely gone it's okay for a cheerleader to shoot heroin she's not going to be frowned on the way i mean it was like one of those things i remember when when sid overdosed and going i don't know if i want to try that yeah no no the murder thing i thought he i thought heroin made you murder people well you know it was just there was just something i mean there wasn't a whole lot that i wouldn't try and that was something it took me no we were some all scared years. Of it. it took me some years to go it to build up the courage to approach it and to do that drug mike might not might not have been scared of it but me anthony flea were scared of it for sure we were we i didn't really i did it one time with top jimmy he shot me up in like i don't know 1985 or something and then, no, maybe even earlier, 83. And I, I just wanted nothing to do with it. It was just scary. Like the whole lifestyle of it, the whole waiting around, the whole, I was just more like a Coke and drinking and, and Xanax, Valium. You get Valium at this bakery by the on Beverly. Remember that, Mike? The bakery where you could get the Valium? No, I don't remember that. Oh, that, that. was me and Martine. You could buy Valium, Mexican Valium diazepam for a dollar a pill. And they had them on these rolls right inside a bakery. <laughs> Fantastic. And they just roll out 20 of them and for 20 bucks. And so, Good for them. Wow. That, that's like down in Chinatown, you used to be able to buy codeine cough syrup. Mm-hmm. You know, you go down there and they had it on the shelf. Yeah. I, was, I looked for fentanyl when we were in San Francisco in Chinatown. I didn't see any. <laughs> I did just, just to see recently? if it was, Yeah, we were there a couple of weeks ago. Just ask. I got the fuck fentanyl hats now. I saw those. Right? <laughs> got a lot of fucking going on on those hats. Yeah. They, you know. <laughs> those hats are great. So they're gone. Like people are what? loving them. Well, wait. We I got to get one, more. I? You got. Did you get one, Mike? No, I want one. Oh, they all went. So we got to get make more. But um, I was going to sell them. But then it's just ridiculous. I just gave them away. I always do that. I used to do that with our merchandise. You I'd know, be like, I don't know. Just <laughs> take it. I don't know. It's uh, I don't it's know. okay to make enough money to buy the next ones. That's it's what okay. everybody says. Right? It's, o- it's okay, to, you know, as long as you're not robbing. But people. what determines that a person gets a free hat and then somebody here? Here's here's the thing. Just like rehab prices, right? So some people I gave them to right away and they loved them, and then some people insisted on paying. So I said, oh, they cost five bucks. So give me ten bucks, and that gives me money to give some to free. So like two people did that. Then people off the internet started wanting wanting them, and I thought, oh, they should pay twenty bucks. I don't know why. I that. <laughs> for, 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 for a hat that costs a couple bucks. Like, yeah. oh, people on the internet should pay twice as much as people I know, and that's awful. I don't want to be that, so we're gonna just give them away. Aloe's gonna fund it all, so we're just gonna keep giving. Well, them someone's got to pay for them at the end of the day, but it was only four hundred bucks <laughs> for like uh, fifty hats and fifty shirts. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, the shirts, though, I picked the wrong size. That's a very limited run, <laughs> 50 hats. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, so, so the funny thing was everybody loved the fentanyl hats. The fentanyl hats went first, right? So I got uh, five of each, right? Or six of each. I thought there were like five, four different hats. Five. There's four different hats. Five, five of each. Twenty. Yeah, twelve, twelve. Oh, I thought there were fifty. I thought there were twelve and a half There's, of each. No, let me see. I paid four hundred bucks. <laughs> I, I four, Here comes math, it was four hundred and two. <laughs> Mike times five. How many did I get? I got ten of each. Then forty. Yeah. yeah, forty hats, and then the rest was t-shirt. Oh no, I got backpacks. That's what it was. 
I got, I got, I got one backpack of each. I have the fuck rehab backpack. Okay. Evan, the head of Acadia, has the fuck heroin backpack. I just saw it in his car today. They're so cool, like black backpacks that say fuck heroin or fuck fentanyl. I don't know where the fentanyl or the benzos one went, but we're gonna try to give them out as just promotion things and whatever. That's the idea. Well, and you know the thing is, it's like I get it with your if it's your band, it's your promotion promotional stuff it's just kind of cool to see people wearing it i it, that's a mistake i've made in almost every band i've been in is just breaking even you know trying to get someone to, uh, to pay, pay the next yeah, just, go just, round just so that we're not losing money just so we're not paying for the show so if you're out there and you want a fuck fentanyl hat or a fuck rehab hat the, see now the fuck rehab hat i knew it would be popular guess who likes the fuck rehab hats people the, that are still drinking walking no, into bars well no you would think that the techs that work in the rehab centers <laughs> oh my <laughs> isn't that weird like uh, they were, can I get, can I wear it to work? And me and Evan were like, no, you can't wear a fuck rehab hat to no, work. That, that's a song that, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that um, Warren was a part of. What? Fuck rehab. Oh, the, a the song? song by, yeah, there's a guy named Chief Keefe. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he's, it, he's, a, he's a crazy yeah, motherfucker I, from Chicago. Yeah, he, uh, and Warren was a part of that. Was he a part of that? Yeah, he's a part of the video, too. It's funny. You should look at it. So, you know, I don't know. I got a lot of negative feedback from the staff at Aloe about the fuck rehab hat, except for the techs loved it. Why did they get... Well, I, I don't know. It was like, we have a rehab center. Yeah. We really well, you know, I, I try to, to break that down for people that, you know what, you can't just say, you can't go into it... Fuck sovereign. You can't have a hat that says fuck sovereign. Right. And for the most part, yeah. I mean, maybe I drink the Kool-Aid where I work, but I think I'm in a good place. I mean, if you're in a place, if I was in a place that I didn't think it was good, I'd change. That's what I do. I've done it a bunch of times. I'd do it again. I would leave if I thought it was unethical or bad. But there's so many that are bad that I can say that with a clear conscience. Well, let's explain, because I thought we would do that. This is my lead-in. The whole, that whole part of the show is the lead-in. Wow. So people don't know why a rehab is good. Right, A rehab is good because of the staff who works there. Now, you got to understand, used to be when I first started 20 years ago, there wasn't that many rehabs. That literally, I can name all 10 of them. Right, So there wasn't a lot of jobs for KDAC counselors. There was only one or two at each rehab, maybe three at the bigger ones like Los Encinas. Right? I think we had four. Yeah, it was mostly right? floor staff. Yeah, it's 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 tax and and therapists. It's like in the old days, you had this is what you had in the staff of a rehab. You had a medical doctor like Doctor Drew. Mm -hmm. You had a psychiatrist like Doctor. Uh, I'm trying to think, Doctor Sophie, right? Or Doctor John Sharp or Doctor Pilko, great psychiatrist. So you had an internist who just specialized in addiction medicine, and you had a psychiatrist, right? Then okay. you had a psychologist. Bobby Carlson was our psychologist, right? Or Lonnie Kai Klaus, Dr. Klaus was our psychologist. Then you had four KDAC counselors, me, Louisa Shelley, and um, Jennifer, this other girl, Jennifer. Right? What a fun team. Right? Yeah. Then you had the techs, right? So all those people cost money. Now, what the phony baloney rehab industry realized 10 years ago is you don't need me, Shelley and Louisa. You just need one counselor you don't need a psychologist you can just get one marriage and family therapist right you certainly don't need a doctor who works at the rehab you can just pay them per head 
mm-hmm. you certainly don't. So, so understand if you went to Los Encinas in the nineteen in the late nineteen nineties or all through the two thousands till we left in two thousand ten, you saw a doctor every day. A doctor was there on the unit all the time, hours and hours. Right, saw every patient every day. Wow. A psychiatrist was there seeing the people who needed a psychiatrist. They only were earmarked by the internal medicine doctors. Not everybody needed a psychiatrist. Only people who were dual diagnosis or had mental health issues needed a psychiatrist, right? Right, right, right. And then, but mostly what you needed was to go to groups, learn about the disease, follow direction, all this kind of stuff, right? But all those people cost money. The new industry that got started by these big monoliths of equity fund bullshit rehabs, right, started with CRC, they got the idea that we can have minimal staff and as long as the person is seen by some licensed person, we can make the same amount of money, if not more. So they gutted the rehabs, the cost of rehab staffing. That's what I mean by bad rehab or fuck rehab. Just because you're in AA does not qualify you to be a case manager in a rehab, to run groups, to, to you understand what I'm saying? Right. And that's what happened. And so KDAC counselors like you and I are dinosaurs. They, they, most rehabs don't have them anymore. The people who are trained to deal with drug addicts. That's our expertise. Now you get a marriage and family therapist and a bunch of kids that are sober a year or two. And guess what? They charge the same as the rehabs with the doctors and psychiatrists right. and psychologists and, and, and four KDAC counselors, right? And so what happens to those places with all those people? They go out of business because they can't compete with these, you know, these baloney flop houses. Yeah, well, you know... I mean, there of all the things I've seen done right, I mean, I really like the idea of um, letting the clinical model, uh, you know, the clinical model has to run the business model. It can't be the other way around. And so many people did. They came in with a but business model. Gotta, but you can't be naive. You still got to get 70 clients. You still got to go get clients. Oh, yeah. Right? And And that's what's interesting about this Google change. Google's no longer going to accept pay-per-clicks for rehab, for words like rehab or treatment or all this kind of stuff. It was big breaking news on uh, last week. So, so a lot of those big organizations who spend a million dollars a month on pay-per-clicks, they're now, they can't even buy the client direction that they want, right? So, so this has put, you know, everybody thinks this is going to be a solution. I was like, hold on, let's see how they counter and how they counter is the, the call centers and the patient brokers' price has gone up. So all those people are just going to migrate over. But the fact is, it's a, it's a tough business right now. And I think a lot of rehabs are going to go out of business in the next 18 months. They're just not going to be able to get the patients. How, how the place that you work at gets them, I don't know. I suspect the same way everybody who is on the up and up does it many different ways organic leads relationships with referral sources um internet optimization um there's a lot of ways to skin a cat most of these big things were just paying just pay a million dollars a month per click yeah that's crazy that's crazy but the money's there the money's there to be made why wouldn't i mean I, i can see why people did it i'm surprised that google took a stand on a moral basis 
Well, I, I've been saying it for years, and a lot of people, obviously, I had a conversation with Patrick Kennedy in New Jersey about it. Like, Google has the power to clean up our industry. See, nothing's, there's not enough government oversight of rehabs. That's why you never see any changes in it. You know what I mean? There's not enough people in Sacramento to keep track of all the shenanigans going on in rehab. So what the insurance industry asked two years ago was, hey, if nobody's going to oversee this Wild West industry, then we're not going to pay anybody who's not JCO accredited. Right? That You heard that rumble. That scared the fuck out of everybody. Right? So, mm-hmm. so I thought... You know, Jayco's hard. Most of these places aren't going to get it. I didn't know there's an entrepreneurial spirit in America. So nurses and doctors who are experts at Jayco started mom and pop shops and went out and got places accredited. You hired them and they worked as staff in your treatment center for when Jayco came and they knew how to answer no the way. questions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, t- <laughs> Well, that's that's some shyster shit jumping (laughs) off. Dude, why is there so much shyster shit in the rehab industry? Mike Martz didn't know shit about the rehab, and so we started this podcast, right? And his mind is blown. He asked me questions. you got to understand, there is so much gross revenue. Now, gross revenue doesn't mean profits, right? Not if you're doing it correctly. Most places, and I know the the business side of it pretty good, most places who are ethical and honorable make about a 10% net. Right, I don't know Warren's books, but I would bet it's somewhere around ten percent, maybe twelve. It's not fifteen. It's definitely not seven because he wouldn't stay in it. Right, nobody's going to take that liability and risk for you know to make you know what eleven thousand bucks a month. You know what I mean? You <laughs> yeah. could do interventions and make more money. <laughs> right. So, so most ethical places make between ten and twelve, thirteen percent. The slime ball places make thirty percent net. Not surprised, right? Doesn't surprise. And and so you can see if if you're grossing a million dollars a month and you're making profit three hundred thousand dollars a month, that's why they all got yachts. <laughs> yeah, I never wanted to be a part of it. I just thought I've always been uncomfortable with it. I've always thought we're just making money off of people suffering. Let's try to keep it to a minimum and let's try to keep the quality so so great that you can feel proud about what you do the addict who's who's uh wanting to be sober i go what do i do i go and talk to him or you know gender specific so somebody's it describes a friend of my wife's husband is alcoholic she talks to him talks to my wife says hey would so and so would bob come over and talk to my husband I go over there and say, hey, what's up? You know, here's what happened to me. Here's what my life was like. You know, I did all this stuff and I've been able to stay sober for two years or five years or whatever it is. So you share your experience, strength, and hope. And, you know, and you kind of give some tips to the wife, right? Hey, you know, don't buy his bullshit. And then if the guy wants to, he's coming to my house for a few weeks to live. And what does it say I should have in my refrigerator? Alcohol, alcohol in case they need it. So I don't care what anybody says, working with others got replaced over the last 30 years by rehab. So now what is a 12-step call to the modern 12-step person? You get the, go over to the guy's house, you go get him and you bring him to rehab, right? Off of Charlie Street, yeah. So rehab, now what happens in the rehab? 
They break furniture, they fight, they argue with us, they tell us to fuck off, they don't want to go to group. What, what does it say in the big book of working with others? Right? Right. Love and tolerance. Right? right, and it says you may have to you may have to fight with them. You may have to replace. <laughs> it does say that you may have a burned mattress or you may have broken furniture. That's true. The only the only difference is that an intervention is usually not called by the drinker. No, it's called by the by the wife. Right, well, or the, the, in the in the big book, it's a, a, somebody you go to a twelve step call. I don't know exactly the details, yeah, but that's basically it. Somebody asks. Because they know that you're, you've turned your life around. They ask you if you'll talk to this alcoholic in their life. You go there. You share your experience, strength, and hope. All I'm doing is going over there and representing the other side of where they want to go. Right? And that they can put it on television and do tarnish, you know, dress it all up as some fancy individual kind of thing. It's basically a 12-step call. Right. And in the old days, the intervention happened but it was a bunch of aa members that just that's got together they with would the go wife, over yeah and they would just go over and say look she, you know she wants to say something to you <laughs> you know and then have her talk or have the other Get her, person she, talk no she's gonna tell him he's gotta leave he's the gotta house. leave yeah yeah you know no two ways about it so like i that. just i just see these general parallels that used to exist i tried to do it in my early sobriety because i was so anti-rehab so I had many people kick at my house. I was one of those guys, right? And they would use and they would steal and and furniture never got broken. Some guitars got stolen. No mattresses <laughs> were burned. No mattresses were burned. Damn. Some guitars Lots were stolen. Lots of CDs missing. Yeah, CDs were missing, but I figured that's karma. <laughs> that, yeah, that might have been me, too. That was karma. That but, was Mike Mark. But, <laughs> but let me tell you something. When, when I realized... I couldn't do it anymore. I had this friend of mine, Diane, stand with us. And and Elijah, my oldest son, was about 11 or 12. And he came into my bedroom petrified. And she, he said, she's in there with needles right now. Oh, my. Right? And, and I was like, oh, my God. And I, I said, this is not working. So, But she was probably the... I'd probably done it 20 or 30 times. I let people kick at my house. I you know, argue with them, fight with them when they wanted to leave to go use. So it's possible to do that. It's it's harrowing. And what's described in working with others is not a pleasant existence in your home. Mm -hmm. I don't know how Bill Wilson thought everybody was going to do that forever. No, we, we would do that at the, the houses, the sober living houses I lived in with Dog on the Roof. We would have people come in and kick on our couches. But yeah. I mean, it was a bunch of sober dudes. It was I a think good place. rehab is better. I think rehab is better. You got a safe, contained environment. You've professionalized this thing. Nobody's detoxing an alcoholic at their house with beer. Oh my! You no know, one. The, the, just the risk, the financial risk. If they seize and they die in your house, can you imagine? The, the You'd family, be done. You're, You'd be the, done. That's the end. The family owns yeah. your house, right? And everything you make after that, yeah. probably. So let's be realistic. There are parts of the ideal of the 12-step world that have not gotten removed because it's treated like an ancient text found in a vase in Saudi Arabia or something. And <laughs> it's true. It's like a part of the Bible or something. Yeah. You, know what I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're correct in that if I said, hey, hey, alcoholic guy that I don't know, come and live with me and my children in Claremont and I'll give you some beer so that you can detox off of alcohol, and the guy dies in my house, 
What happens to me in a 21st century America? The end of me. Larry H. Parker. Yeah. So, so, so understand that. I don't think it's bad that rehab has replaced it, mm-hmm. but it has replaced it. And it's good that people that have experienced strength and hope work in it. My problem has been, since the big equity funds got involved, they pushed all us sober people out, and now it's run by a bunch of fucking psychobabble nitwits. <laughs> you can go to a rehab center and not come in contact with a sober person for days. That would never consider going out on a call and talking to a fucking crazy drunk. No, they don't even see alcoholism as a disease. They see it as a symptom of mental health problems. Right, right. right? Where, where I get in arguments about Suboxone with those people all the time because they see it as a, a treatment that makes sense. So I was talking I, to I a Suboxone. To I was talking to a Suboxone gal yesterday and you know, she knew I wasn't crazy about it, but I'm opening my mind to it. And I just asked her some, some simple questions. I said, do you smoke crack? And she said, no, I don't. I've never smoked crack. And I said, okay, do you drink sometimes on it? And she said, sometimes. And I said, do you smoke weed on it? And she said, yeah, pretty much I smoke weed and I'm on Suboxone, and sometimes I drink. I said, well, how is that any different than how you were living before? Right? What, what, how is it different? You're blitzed out of your fucking mind. Right. And Well, that's the thing, is they don't realize that they're under the, the influence of Some, an opiate. They're not just on an agonist. They're on an antagonist and an agonist. They're loaded. It's simply because of simple. the cost of heroin. If heroin was covered by insurance and everybody got it for free, everyone would be on heroin. I guarantee you that over Suboxone. Oh, yeah. for sure. It's simply the cost of heroin. It's very expensive. You have increased tolerance. It, it goes up and up and up. You've got to come up with $40, $80 a day. Oh, and People, you have to have a different name, too. You can't call it heroin. Yeah, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should try to create a drug that's better than Suboxone that people can consider themselves sober on and, and brings the risk down. Well, you know, so well, that's Suboxone. <laughs> that's what, yeah. So you could just call, yeah. yeah. Wait, what if we just put some heroin in the Suboxone? I bet you that would be popular. But I have a friend. I have a friend that was a terrible, terrible junkie, and he's on Suboxone and for how long? Was, he, for a long, long time. He'll probably be on it for the rest of his life. But he doesn't shoot dope anymore. Does he smoke weed or drink? I don't know. He I think he probably has dope. a glass he's of wine it. every once in a while. But you know, he's 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 good with his family. He keeps his job. You know, and he was awful before. So the question is, what what is it that people want? And what I always wanted was freedom and peace of mind that's why i took drugs i wanted freedom and peace of mind and it looked like freedom and peace of mind it certainly felt like freedom and peace of mind right until until the doctor cuts him off from suboxone and he goes into a, a, a kick that he's never felt before but but let's get back to why drug addicts take drugs i wanted to be an outlaw i wanted to be free i didn't want to live by the rules of society and i also had a haunting inside me that needed to be mitigated right so alcohol marijuana speed cocaine and eventually heroin were the pathways of feeling free and getting rid of this haunting whatever you want to call it i i don't think it's low self-esteem that's where i think the whole 12-step world is wrong um in that respect that everything is based on low self-esteem i i just don't buy it and i don't buy that bill wilson had low self-esteem no i don't he, buy that either i don't buy it 
So why is everything in the fourth step about low self-esteem? It's just ridiculous, right? And, and you're forced into a box. You either accept that you have low self-esteem or, or you can't continue. You know what I mean? Not, I was not motivated by low self-esteem. I was motivated, now this gets into a clinical arena. I was motivated by childhood trauma and the haunting of that. I'm pretty convinced of feeling unloved, unworthy of love. Love, in the arena of love. Not in the arena of writing songs. Not in the arena of like, I'm, I'm dumb or I'm insecure or I'm stupid or whatever that <laughs> thing people. I always thought I was smarter than everyone in the room. I was cooler than everyone in the room. But I was not, I didn't feel loved. Right, no. That's ego, what childhood trauma does amok. to you. Egos run amok in 12-step. Are you kidding me? But I mean, how does everything boil down to low self-esteem? I think it's the idea that, that when other people do attacks our ego and we don't like when other people would, when someone pays attention to, when Mr. Brown pays attention to your wife and your wife pays attention back, oh, that attacks your, your frail ego. Because it's not a frail ego. But, See, but, that's but, the but, wrong. That's wrong. So that's no, completely that's, wrong. That's where all of no, it it's goes. No, it's a lack of ego strength is why that happens. Is why a person feels like, oh, my wife's gonna fuck this other guy or leave me for this other guy. It's also Bill Wilson's projection, because he felt that way or whatever. I never have felt that way. Like if she wants to go with somebody else, and obviously then she's, she's not, not meant for to me, be. Yeah. I've always felt that. Yeah. I have always felt that. Yeah. I never ch have checked a girl's phone or worried where she was or anything. <laughs> That's somebody... because your one true love is opiates. <laughs> and it's always... Yeah, I always wanted to know where she was. <laughs> That's exactly sure. how I was. I was, sure. never, I was never jealous. I was never like, yeah, go ahead. I don't care. Because <laughs> I have my love, and it's right here in this, you know, in this brown Do they little not bag make in my sock. Do they not needle. make junkies like Bob and Mike anymore? No, that's the same, and I think it's genetics. I mean, I, no, I've but been I, listening. But do you talk to young people? Do you think I, young people are so insecure and they worry so much what somebody said on Facebook about them? I don't give a fuck what like, you think of me. Do you think it's a genetic disposition that you know you are predetermined? I just think that that however your trauma forms and however it affects everybody needs. Here's here's the basic human uh, desire to be loved. It's a basic primal to feel safe, right. to be loved. Food, shelter, yeah. love. Childhood trauma creates a shattering that makes love feel like from an angle. It, it just doesn't ever register, right? Until you can heal that, you will never feel loved. And then thus you'll always have problems in relationships. Why are the, why are the, the focus of the 12-step world so much on relationships? Because people who don't feel loved and feel slighted or, or paranoid about who somebody's going to fuck act irrationally, right? So maybe you're right, Mike. Maybe we did find our lover, and as long as dope, as long as they were still selling dope, I was cool with wherever the girl was going to go. As long as my heroine didn't cheat on me, <laughs> I was... <laughs> what, what, so what's the equal to it? So I have... I've gone downtown, this is before I got so bad where I just shoot drugs anywhere. I'd gone downtown to get like $40 worth when I left away from buying it from middlemen like Frenchie or something and I found a direct source. I get $40 worth, but it wasn't the usual guy I bought it from or the usual guys that I bought it from. You could tell the street was different. So I was right away, I was like, ah, oh, shit. 
Yeah, see, that's true heartbreak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the heartbreak happened in Silver Lake. Remember that little apartment I had on Vendome? So I get back there. I could walk to Mike's house from my house. So I get back there, and I open it up, and I smell it, and it smells kind of like tar, right? So then I put... I knew it was going to be shitty, so I put like half of it in a spoon, sucked it all up, shot it, nothing, right? Mm. That was heartbreak, Michael. How could she cheat on me like that? Wow. Well, so the difference is, is the, the difference is it, there's some people have love, and you guys think love is physical pleasure. No, it's the closest thing, right? If you can't feel love. So then eventually, you know, we're, I'll be honest, where I first felt loved was by Elvis when he was about two years old. I was 52 years old. You understand that? Where I, he looked at me and it was like how everything should be, right? There was a pureness and an innocence and a perfection to it that that i know is what other people are describing in their marriages in their feelings for their children and and or whatever you know for jesus for anything that right. that thing i want more of that and so that so emotion that that, that and, connection and i have it now with sid it took a while because babies are hard but once they get to a certain point like you just saw it in there she wants to come to me like that's love. That's what. That's that. Why I tell my friends, it's right. what it's all about. I don't know. I still haven't figured out human relations all that well. You know what I mean? Yeah. I and do you agree? Do you agree? Like I like I believe that like as a man, sort of. You know, we're not connected to the child coming out to, until it does develop. You know, a sense of like being, because at the beginning they're just like little sandbags, and they just and need just their like, mom. Yeah, you just need your mom, so you're not really that attached. Guys that come up that say, "Oh, I was immediately I felt this so much." You know, I don't understand that. Yeah, I, 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 I understand it intellectually, but I'm telling you the feeling, and I'm sure you've had it with your daughters. There's yeah, but, just but once it started, amazing. didn't it continue? Yeah. Didn't it continue? Then you could look for it. You knew what we were looking for. And I knew what I was looking for in the dope. And I knew what I was looking for in the booze. And I knew kind of what I was missing. Because I can tell you for a fact that when they cut Liam out of, uh, out of, out of Amy, I was just immediately enthralled. It was immediate. But with the other kids, it took till after I was sober yeah. for a period to be able to have the same feeling for them that I had for him almost immediately. Yeah, and, and I think that it's an ongoing journey for all sober people and high people. We're trying to feel loved and nurtured and safe. And, and that extends to non-addicts. And so what, what explains to me America's division and hatred and opinions and narcissism and what explains how, you know a quarter of the country loving heroin and it's not stopping is trauma. It's right. childhood shattering. It's, and, and, you know, I, I think we have a strange way of, of uh, not protecting our children. Do you understand? Of not cherishing them. I, I went to Elvis's school this morning. I'm like, fuck school. Fuck this place. <laughs> fucking educational industrial center like a fucking factory. You know what I mean? I just don't like school. I, I don't. I, I think it... What do you think, Mike? You have to be involved. You know why? The child deserves that. The child deserves to love school 
and not, no, they, not here, grow up like I, me. I, I Nobody was involved in my school. My mom. Oh, died. I'm involved in the school, and Sam's really involved in the school. I'm telling you, that's where they learn hatred. The word hate. That's where Elvis learned it at fucking school. He never uttered that word. They will pick up on your your negative. No, word. Elvis. Elvis loves school. It's me that doesn't like it. And you gotta love it with him. You gotta go with all those things, man. I all go those, to all those all things of them, man. and wear the wristband and the t-shirt yeah. and the you Halloween. You think I'd like dressing Halloween up like a night. king on fucking Princess <laughs> Day, man? Fuck you know. Mike <laughs> Mart dressed up as a king you on know, Princess I do it Day. I my kid Aww. because my ah, kid. that's love yeah, right there. Right? Yeah. Or cowboy, you know, father daughter dance. You're dressed up like oh, you know, oh my it's god. Not the greatest thing in the world for Why you. Why aren't you posting pictures of that? Yeah, I, I want to see have. that. Cowboy Day? Cowboy, uh, <laughs> cowboy, cowboy Maybe Day? I didn't post those. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but so so let's get, get back to this point. So I just believe that trauma is what creates this, this phenomenon called addiction. It's a, it's a major contributing factor, right? Right. And, well, and, you know, all they you have to be a family history of it or whatever. I don't know. That kind of plays into that it's tra- a traumatic childhood. If you got an alcoholic dad, you know what I mean. If you got a non-present mom who's high on benzos out of her mind, right? So I'm not I'm not big on like all the other things, but I do know that that trauma creates this block from feeling loved. Now, what do most Americans? How do they feel loved for Christ for Jesus? I'm telling you. That's why Christianity and the evangelical movement is so popular in America, because it breaks through the trauma to a reassuring love. I, I truly believe that. I, it's a, I've watched it in my mom. My mom was one of the most just fucked up people in the world. When she was at church or she would talk about Christ, she was a different person. She was feeling love. She, her mental blockage caused by her childhood was unable to block out the, her feelings that Christ loved her and all this kind of stuff. I'm telling you, I've watched it forever. Trauma creates a blockage of love and drugs seem like a good replacement for it. Then they turn against you and sobriety is a long journey to feeling loved. That's, that's all it is to me. And so and being able to being able to experience love, I absolutely I couldn't agree more. It takes a it took a long time, and I I, I cherish it because you know we can talk about uh, dope and booze all day, and it didn't come close. Yes, opium feels good physically, but you're right; it turns so quick, and we we can talk about it. I can't compare. I mean, if this wasn't better, what I, what's happening now? I'd be back doing the other. Yeah, you got, but you got to hang in there, and oh, it the, takes, and the, takes time. And the problem, uh, you know, let's 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 just be honest. Um, I've been sober twenty two years. It happened five years ago. I was seventeen years sober when I felt pure unconditional love. Seventeen years sober, but still, I meandered along, and life was good, and life, you know, has its ups and downs. People are not willing to sign up for life. They're just not like I'll stay sober if my psych meds are right and I'm fucking everything's okay mm-hmm. and I'm okay and I get what I want. And people, the the pain of using causes you to sign up for sobriety no matter what, no matter fucking what. 
if I get my way or don't get my way. I remember I got arrested when I had like 18 days sobriety, right? And I was in, you know, and I, 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 it's a long story, but so I, I had my friend Robert Sobel's car. He was out of town. I was driving. I had a valid driver's license for the first time in years. I'd just gotten out of two months in jail, a month and a half in jail, where all my warrants were cleared up. I, get, I rolled through a stop sign, going to the Monday night Chinatown meeting. I rolled through a stop <laughs> sign. Cops saw it, pulled me over. Mike, you've been in this position a thousand times. You know when they just are taking too long at the computer? Yeah. <laughs> That's the baddest feeling because you know it's coming. You know it's coming and you can't run because they know who you are, right? And it's they just, have your driver's it's, license. It's <laughs> got to play out. And he finally came up to the car, the Jeep. It was a Jeep. And he said, could you step out of the car, Mr. Forrest? And I was like, oh, my God. I just got out of jail. How could there be anything? And he goes, I don't know, something's popped up. And then he put me in the car, another car came and whatever. And the cop driving me to, uh, on Wilcox police station in Hollywood, the guy driving me goes, what day did you get out of jail? And I was like, uh, 18 days ago. And he goes, I'll be damned. He goes, this warrant popped up about 11 days ago. <laughs> So it was an, it was a, a back child support warrant, right? So I was in Hollywood jail, right? Facing uh, being in there for another three weeks until they get me to the fucking child support division in Orange County. Well, they and, put you in the glass house, right? But but I was just signed up. I was just I'm sober. I'm not strung out. I'm not going to kick. I know what's going to happen. They're going to yeah. They're going to transfer me to the glass house tonight. I'm going to get put in la county jail they're then gonna get me on a bus once the computers click in and it was a monday so i figured that's not gonna happen this week because it's not gonna happen tuesday wednesday thursday friday so i'm gonna be in here till next week they're gonna bring me to santa Ana jail i'm gonna appear on the warrant they're gonna make their decision or whatever they're gonna put me back to orange county then back to la and i'll be here until whatever i was signed up for it sober i didn't care i was sober mm -hmm. I know what's going to happen. I'll be out in three weeks or two weeks or something. I was not anxious. I was not upset. I was polite to the cops. That's when like, you know. That's when you know it's over, man. Yeah, and and so guess what happened? Anthony and Dave Navarro came out and came down and bailed me out of jail at the Hollywood Division. They heard that nice. I got arrested, and I I couldn't believe it. Like Johnny Navarro and and Dave and Anthony. I think Anthony obviously must have paid for it you but, said dave and then you said johnny yeah johnny's his cousin that was my sponsor wow. right so isn't that cool but i remember being in there like this is totally cool this is gonna happen uh, whatever i'll be sober it's no big deal like if i was just gave i just was in here for a month and right a well that, that's one of the buns buzzwords is the the painstaking are you painstaking are you willing to suffer through the stuff are you willing to walk through it and that's, that's where we lose a lot of people because they're not willing to walk through it. They're not going to detox. Well, but if that had happened to me four months before, I would have been that guy that everyone's trying to avoid on the street in Echo Park, right? Like, oh, here comes Bob with a story. Like, you know, I got arrested. A fucking bad child support. A fucking, 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 fucking bullshit. A fucking don't even have a job. Why the fucking, fucking, fucking bullshit? I don't even know why they got to get money. Boom, boom, boom. It's so fucking unjust. Right, you're just done, man. You're yeah, like, and you're, you're done, done talking done. about it, man. And, and, and so what rehab does is help, help move people along 
to, to stabilize them, educate them, contain them, till they can safely adjust into the world, and then it's up to them. They either sign up for sobriety or they don't. And all this hoopaloo about psychobabble and whatever, like, I was, I just want to say this. I don't even remember much from the first five years of my sobriety. I don't remember some great breakthroughs. You just fucking take care of business. Keep calm and carry on. Don't use no matter what, right? This idea that you're going to heal your inner child in month four because some rehab is going to make money off your insurance is bullshit. You know, it's a long, hard journey and you're signing up for it. And when you're ready, you sign up for it. And when you're not, you don't. And good luck, man. Bye-bye. Ah, Hey, this is Bob and the Don't Die Podcast. Got 100 people a day dying of drug overdoses, and it's got to stop. Aloe Treatment Centers wants it to stop. We want people to get educated about drugs, about treatment. We want you to learn, laugh, and live. But first and foremost, don't die. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell Bob told you to call.